All right, so we are looking at James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. The Lord says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar? Do you see that his faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see, then, that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. All right, so Mr. Maurer asked whether this would be a Reformation-themed class, and of course it is because the Reformation was about the recovery of the Word of God and about the recovery of the doctrines of grace. Now, one of the things, and I'm sure, no doubt, you have sensed the tension as we read this passage, but one of the things that has happened is people have wondered whether James in this section contradicts what was taught in the Reformation, and more to the point, whether James contradicts what the Apostle Paul teaches about justification by faith alone. And very plainly, you heard it, James says that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. And if you have Roman Catholic friends, they will surely say to you, the only place that faith alone appears in the Bible is in this passage. Um, And it says that man is not justified by faith alone. Now, it's somewhat regrettable that the issue with James chapter 2, verses 14 and following has become whether he contradicts the Apostle Paul. And the reason why that's unfortunate is that James is teaching us something very specific in this passage. Mm -hmm. He has a doctrine that is worth our consideration and worth our belief. And we should take him on his own terms without having to argue that he doesn't contradict the Apostle Paul. Understand that scripture is God-breathed, right? God does not contradict himself. No scriptures contradict each other. When there appears to be a contradiction, it's on the end of the interpreter, not on the end of the the Bible, okay? Um, But what I would like to do then as we work through here, I think if we follow James's argument, if we understand what he is saying, we see it sweetly complies with what the Apostle Paul teaches, and there really is no need to ask whether they conflict with each other or try to reconcile. As the old expression goes, we don't ever need to reconcile friends. Right? Friends are already in agreement. They are not at enmity with one another. Um, so, let's look then at this passage. 
basically we'll divide it into several parts. James names his or states his thesis, his main proposition in verse 14. He then illustrates that thesis in 15 through 17. He pauses to answer an, an objection in verses 18 and 19. He then gives another illustration, this one concerning demons. He restates his thesis, you'll see in verse 20 of chapter 2, and then he gives two illustrations, one of Abraham and one of Rahab, in order to further prove his thesis. And by thesis, again, I just mean his his central argument, his main claim, his proposition, um, the the point he wants you to get from all of this. And we see this right here in verse 14, okay? There's a question. Know this about James's questions. His questions are not meant generally to gain information, but rather to get the reader or the hearer to acknowledge something, right? He's actually making an assertion by means of a question. There are different kinds of questions, right? There are sometimes when we ask a question, we're seeking information. James is using questions rhetorically to make an assertion. So his assertion is that faith that does not have works is not profitable and it is not effectual to salvation. All right. Now, he does this, as I say, by means of a question. Um, the contrast, of course, is between faith where someone says they have faith, but they do not have works. Now, this is not as obvious in our translations. Some of the English translations will say, can this faith save him? And the reason why is there is an article attached to faith. It's what's sometimes called an anaphoric article, meaning it doesn't need an article, so it's the faith, okay? It doesn't need an article there for this, but it uses an article almost like a pronoun, like a, like a demonstrative pronoun. Can this faith save him? Which faith? The faith in which someone says he has it, but does not have works. Can, can this kind of faith, can a faith that you say you have, but does not have works, cannot save you. Well, his implied answer, no, of course not. Right? Um, so we could translate this verse, this faith is not able to save him. Is it? That's more literally how it reads in the Greek. This faith is not able to save him. Is it? And you see what he is saying, what his point he wants you to have is that someone who says they have faith but do not have the accompanying works, does not have a profitable or powerful faith. He then illustrates this thesis in verses 15 through 17. And he begins with the question of a a brother or sister who is naked and destitute of daily food. And then someone says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but not giving them the things which are needed for the body. Now you just... this. Illustration works on two levels. The most basic level is you have not profited that brother or sister by your words only, right? That's the most basic point. It's not effective, it's not powerful, it is not profitable. But it also works on the sense that the person who says to their brother or sister, be warm and be filled, they're saying nice things, they're saying something, they're making a profession, as it were they are not actually demonstrating faith, right? So, what does it profit then in verse 16, James says? Nothing is the implied answer. 
Then he asserts, that faith is dead, which by itself is faith. Right? Faith, that's by itself. In other words, faith not accompanied by works, it's dead. Now, dead here means not, not um, active, not doing anything, not profiting, not able to save, not accomplishing anything, okay? If it does not have works. All right, so as we said, this is an illustration of his thesis. Dead here means useless, ineffectual, unprofitable, unable. The question, what does it profit, expects a negative answer. And the contrast then in 15 and 16 is between words, depart in peace, be warm and filled, and deeds, but you do not give. And we all are familiar with this, right? Sometimes we, we know, we feel an obligation or a duty, and so we say something, right? I will pray for you, or, oh man, I hope that works out, but then we don't do anything. See, the difference is the words themselves don't have the power to profit someone. Now, it's not as if words themselves are never profitable. Sometimes just sharing the truth with someone or, or telling someone, I forgive you. or it's, right, Words themselves can accomplish things, but it, when the need is something like food or clothing, our words cannot supply that need. All right, so you see there's the, the deadness of those words corresponds to the deadness of faith without works. His conclusion, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It is the positive assertion that's implied by his question. Right? That's how James uses those rhetorical questions. So that faith which is dead is a specific kind of faith. Note that. It's a faith that is qualified by the terms by itself and without works. All right, any questions or comments at this point? Yes, Mr. Maurer. Okay, let me play devil's advocate, yeah. hopefully not literally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what about the thief on the cross? I mean, people say, well, he didn't, you know, what works did he do? And yet Jesus said, you know, this day you shall be with me in paradise. Yeah. Um, now I could argue that you know he said remember me and yes so that was an expression that's right. of that's right that's um, right yeah yeah um, J C Ryle I think puts it very best concerning the thief on the cross he's an excellent illustration for us in a number of ways one is he is there to show us that any man can be saved that no man may despair but he's also there to show us that only one man ever had that opportunity, lest any man would take comfort in holding off to the last minute to repent. Right. right? So the thief on the cross works in that way. He shows us it's possible for God to save a man as he is dying. Most people don't get that opportunity. The lights <laughs> go out and that's it. So too with these works. All right? There's a lot of things that the thief on the cross didn't have the opportunity to do. As far as we know, he never took the Lord's Supper. He never went and did a Bible study. He didn't have a chance to do any of those things because he was dead. All right, He being dead then didn't have the opportunity, like Abraham, and we'll see in a moment, like Abraham had the opportunity to prove his faith by his works. Now, what did the thief do? Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That was the evidence of his faith at that point, right? Yes, sir. Tom. So, also, just on that same subject, you know, certainly, 
strapped to a cross, there isn't about much he can do. Mm -hmm. so that's the right. The only thing he can do is witness to the other. Yes, and he oh, did that, didn't he? He, did. he said, we are criminals and we deserve what we're getting, right? Certainly. And this man is innocent, yeah. So to witness about yeah. who his Savior yeah. is, like immediately. Yes. So if you took his activity on the cross that afternoon, <clears throat> you realize there's a lot condensed in a short period of time, right? He, in fact, he succeeded where Peter would later fail, right? He owned Jesus, and actually stood up for him and was willing to be identified with him. So that you see then, his faith was working with his works, even in that short amount of time. So does that, um, does that answer your... Yes. Very good. All right. Um, let's see. So faith without its, uh, by itself and without works is the kind of faith which James... Is speaking of all right. So then there's an object, an objection in verses 18 and 19. Uh, but someone will say, "You have faith, and I have works." All right. So the way that I have always read this, and the way that it makes the most sense, is James is presenting the objection, reframed, rephrased from James's point of view. It's like I can I can say, um, "You say you have faith." And I have works. You see that? James is quoting someone, but he's telling them, Oh, you, Mr. Objector, you are telling me you have faith and I have works. So the, the supposition is along these lines. We agree that there has to be faith and works, right? Or you might say <clears throat> you have works, but it's okay. I have faith, right? They're, they're trying to say that they have faith and James has works. Together, maybe, we'll have the whole thing, or um, you go ahead and go on with your works, but I'm going to stick with faith. So James is quoting the objector. You, the objector, say that you have faith, and I, James, have works. But look at the point of his response. Faith can't be shown without works. Go, he says to them, go ahead, show me your faith without your works. Show me the faith of the thief on the cross without anything. Now, if we didn't have, um, for instance, this will become relevant a little bit later, but in Genesis 15, if it weren't for the narrator telling us that Abraham believed God, how would we know that, right? How would we know that? Now, we have, in that instance, certain knowledge that he believed God because God tells us he did. But ordinarily speaking, how do we know? I want to take us to the book of Hebrews for a moment. In chapter 11, we have the hall of faith. By faith, so-and-so did such and such, right? How do we know? By what they did. Okay? By what they did. Um, so that's what this object... This is the objection. Then is they're saying, well, I have faith. You just can't see it. Or, you know, I don't need to have works to have faith. But James is saying, well... Show me this faith. Prove it. And then James says, I will show you my faith. How? By my works, right? Why? Because by faith, believers do what is commanded by God. Do you see that? Um, now he brings in another illustration. And this is to prove that an orthodox confession, you can believe or say the right things, but not have saving faith. Okay, you can believe, look at the, 
You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Do you see how, um, by the way, this is probably uh, a quotation of what's called the Shema. The, the, you know, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Many Jews in history and Christians in the beginning especially um, quoted this, right? It distinguished Christians from the polytheists and the pagans and all of these things around them. And it's an orthodox confession. You all should believe that the Lord our God is one, right? Nothing wrong with that. It's perfectly true and orthodox. But his point is, is that a true and orthodox confession of faith by itself cannot save anyone. Even demons have that kind of faith. But they are not saved. In fact, they have true knowledge of God. Demons know a lot about God. But they do evil. Right? So they tremble. Why do they tremble? Because they know their works are wicked. They know that God will judge them. In the Gospels, <clears throat> you often see instances where demons know a lot about Jesus Christ. In Mark's Gospel, I think the demons are the first to profess that he's the Son of God. That's pretty remarkable. They knew he was the Son of God. They knew he had authority over them. They knew a lot about him, right? They knew things sometimes before the disciples did. Satan, when he tempted Christ, knew that he was the Son of God. And he knew that he came to um, deliver God's people from their sins. That's very orthodox stuff. But we would not say that the demons or Satan have saving faith. Why not? Because what they know and what they do are contradictory. Right? There's a difference between saving faith and a mere knowledge. Okay? Sometimes in the Reformers, so the census is Reformation Sunday, they would call it an historical faith. Right? You know the facts, and you maybe don't even dispute them. You're fine with them, right? There may be, there's many people in um, the American church, probably not as many anymore, but there are many people who agree with things like, well, Jesus was born of Mary, right? And he's the Son of God, and he came to die for people's sins, and he rose from the dead. I don't have any problem with those things. I was just talking with a man this past week, and he talked about his conversion, and he believed all of those things about Jesus, but he didn't believe that Jesus did those things for him. Mm. Do you see how that, that slight difference? He understood, you know, he had been raised and catechized in, in Catholic schools, and he had understood that, yes, if anyone would ask him, you know, who is Jesus? Well, he said, well, he's the Son of God. He died for sins, and he was raised from the dead. But then a pastor wisely asked him, did he do that for you? And it's simply that difference, right? The knowing that Jesus died, not for sinners out there, but for this sinner. And that made the difference between historical faith and saving faith. Um, yeah, go ahead, Mr. Maurer. Uh, yes, um, and you can see, again, um, you know, the, the fact that um, James is uh, Jesus' brother here, because yeah. you'll, hear, you'll hear people say, um, you know, if, if, if uh, for example, you know, I've gone into a conversation with people who say they're Christians, but they don't go to church or whatever. Mm. Well, God knows God that knows. I believe, and yeah. I love it. But what did Jesus say? If you love me, keep my commandments. Yes, yes. You know, uh, yes. You know, uh, why do you call me Lord, Lord? 
and do not the things I say. Yes, yes, and and you see how James is is pulling out these things, right? He's he's drawing out these errors, showing people, right, by asking questions, by by giving the example of the demons. Um, he he's he understands the heart of man and how someone might think. Like you say, well, I have a faith, but I keep it between me and God. Yeah, that used to be a very popular thing to say, right? Oh, I'm not a religious person; I don't wear it on my sleeve and. Um, and there's a sense in which, yes, of course, your faith is between you and God, but, but if there is no evidence of that faith, what James is saying is, that's not actually the kind of faith you need to have. Yes, Mr. Kaufman. Yeah, so one of the <clears throat> analogies we've used with our kids is, say somebody came up to you and they had a, they had a tree, right, it hasn't sprouted anything, it's just the branches, you know, maybe five foot tall, and they said, this is an apple tree. Yeah. And they're telling you this is an apple tree. And you say, okay. And they plant it. A year goes by, you come back, and he's still saying this is an apple tree, but there's oranges coming off the tree. Yeah. yeah. And would you say that's an apple tree? No. Why? Because even though he's professing it's an apple tree, right. yeah. it's yeah. bearing oranges, yep. and an apple tree doesn't become an apple tree only when it produces apples. The fact it produces apples right. is evidence that its nature is to produce. That's right. It was always apple. the kind of tree it was. And in your your, your uh, illustration is very similar to how the Lord Jesus taught, right, about fruit. Um, that's the point, is that a tree bears the kind of fruit fitting the kind of tree it is. And sometimes we don't discover the nature of the tree until <clears throat> we see its fruit. Right, we and that's why, for instance, in the church, um, you know, there's the parable of the wheat and the tares, and in the church, this is why we are um, charitable towards those who profess faith and charitable towards children in the church, because Jesus warns not to uproot them all, lest you harm some of the the uh, wheat that is young and tender, right? And so we we be careful, and until we have evidence that they are tares and not wheat, we don't uproot them. Nevertheless, those that grow up into wheat were always wheat, right? They were always wheat, and those who are tares were always tares. That's, and it just is revealed in time. And sometimes, by God's grace, someone will, God will intervene through someone and let us know, oh boy, I, I don't have that kind of faith. I'm in trouble here, right? I thought I saw a hand. Okay. All right, now, James then in, in verse 20 restates his thesis. But, do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Here again, he's using the question to make a statement, right? Um, now, some people read this, and it, I think it can go either way, but is verse 20 following from verse 19? In other words, he just gave the example of demons, and then he could say, do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith is without works is dead? And it could be, I just showed you demonic faith, and that could be exactly the same kind of faith you have. right? Or, we could read verse 20 as an introduction to the next parts, in which he gives the examples of Abraham and Rahab. And it really, um, it's not critical that we decide one way or the other on that. Because the, the whole point here is he's simply restating what he said back in verse 14. Faith without works is dead. And I'm here to show you that. That's, that's his, his point. Um, 
The second part of the question then is that restatement of this thesis. Now, notice that James doesn't here say that works save, nor does he say that works apart from faith accomplish anything. In fact, he doesn't really tell us what it is that works do except for demonstrate faith. He is, all throughout, he is really talking, the subject is faith, the kind of faith, and what it has with it, right? So it's not, he's not arguing that you are saved by works apart from faith. That's, that would be a mistake to understand that. That's not his, his point. His point is rather, this faith that you have must also have something else. I want to go back to the demons for just a moment and say, James says, and they tremble. Right? Do you think of the person who professes faith but doesn't have any works? They're feeling secure. They're not threatened. Mm. The demons tremble. Do you see how the demons, in a certain sense, are more humble or more aware than the person who has false faith? And that should, should, we should tremble, right? To think that, oh, I could be professing faith, but not have a faith that saves. All right, now we come to the illustration of Abraham. Here again, the question, was not Abraham, and here's where we introduce the word justified, was not Abraham justified by works? And he's qualified as Abraham, our father, right? The father of the Jews. And on what occasion was this? When he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar. And there's a question. Do you see that his faith was working together with his works? And by works, his faith was made perfect. Notice that works here are both an accompaniment to the faith and then the means by which his faith was made perfect. And then there's a result. Two results, actually, his faith being made perfect, and then secondly, in verse 23, the scripture being fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. And his conclusion, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. All right, so in verses 21 through 24, James demonstrates his initial thesis with the example of Abraham, who was justified by works when he offered his son Isaac in Genesis 22. Abraham's faith was working together with his works, and by his works it was made perfect. The word perfect here means complete, okay? It's in the, the sense of um, being brought to its goal. The faith that Abraham had, which was discussed in Genesis 15, was brought forward to its goal in Genesis chapter 22. doesn't mean it was perfect in the sense of it lacked nothing, but rather it was shown to be genuine faith. It was brought to... And, and what was the goal? Well, that he would be a friend of God, <laughs> that he would fear the Lord, that he would do what the Lord told him to do, right? So his faith that he had in Genesis 15 is brought to a completion, thus vindicating what God said in Genesis 15 about Abraham's faith, right? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
This incident fulfilled God's own declaration of imputed righteousness in Genesis 15.6. James concludes from this example of Abraham that a man is justified by works and not faith only. Now, important to our understanding of James' conclusion are how he uses the term justified. And there's two ways that two things I want you to notice in this. One, um, what justification describes here, right? What the term describes in this context, and then how it fits James's overall argument. I'll see if I can make that clear. The word justified in verses 21 and 24 do what? Let's see if we can. So in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? And in 24, you see then that a man is justified by works. So what does justification refer in this instance? Vindication. Yes, it refers to Abraham showing that he had faith and that he was righteous as God had initially declared. Do you see that? He is showing what was true. He's not being counted righteous in this instance, is he? That already took place, okay? So, so when, it, when James says justified, he's saying proven, demonstrated, okay? And then the second thing is look at how it fits in his argument. Abraham's justification in Genesis 22 was a demonstration of his faith and God's declaration in 15, Genesis 15. So Abraham's faith was accompanied by works, Therefore, it was profitable, it was effectual, it was demonstrable. Remember what he's been saying all throughout. Faith without works is not profitable, it is not effectual, right? It's not able to save, and it can't be seen. You show me your faith without works. Impossible. I will show you my faith by works. Abraham, in obeying God even to the point of being willing to offer his son, showed his faith by his works. Now the word justified that is used here is the same word that Paul uses, but this word is used in more than one sense, right? So as, as Don used, I like the word vindicated. That's a good way to say it. Um, Jesus uses this expression, or this word, in this sense, in Matthew chapter 9 and also in Luke chapter 7. But he, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 11, verse 9. But he says that wisdom is justified by her children. And he's talking about, um, you know, John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, and they said he, had a, he was wrong. And then the Son of Man came both eating and drinking, and they said he was a drunkard and a glutton. So they basically, whatever prophet God sends, the people criticize him, right? But Jesus says wisdom is justified by her children, meaning the fruit to your point, Mr. Coffin, will prove, will vindicate. Jesus and John the Baptist were both vindicated by their children, their children metaphorically referring to the fruit of their teaching and of their lives. Okay, So justified in that sense means demonstrated, vindicated, proven, and that is how James is using justified here in this passage. So Abraham's faith being accompanied by works showed, demonstrated, vindicated him, his faith, right? Um, many years after God's initial declaration, it's, it's something like, 
um, at least 14 years, maybe more. Okay? Um, so many years later, Abraham is shown to be a friend of God. He is shown to have feared God. In fact, remember in Genesis 22, in verse 12 of Genesis 22, the Lord, he says, Abraham, don't, don't lay a hand on the boy. Now I know that you fear the Lord. Did God actually need to learn that? <laughs> right? I think God is speaking somewhat rhetorically in that instance, right? God himself is saying, it's shown, it's demonstrated that you fear me. And why? Your faith in me is so strong, so true, that you would even slay your own son because I told you to. So do you see how the faith is what gives rise to the obedience, and then the obedience in turn proves the presence of the faith. Um, let's see. Any any questions or comments at this point? Everyone, yes, Mr. Mao. Yeah, Roman Catholic apologists will say, um, for example, when they when they contrast uh, James uh, uh, two twenty four. Uh, justified by works and not by faith only with Paul saying that a man is justified apart from the works of the law. He said, well, that Paul was talking about the ceremonial law there. Sure, sure, and, yeah, and, right. And, and, and I, yes, and and partly that's correct to partly, say the yes. ceremonial law. However, that's not the entirety of it, is it? Um, no. Meaning that uh, Paul is saying that you are not um, reckoned, counted righteous on the basis or the ground, as it were, of your works, right? You are not declared righteous in the sight of God on the basis of the things you do, whether they be in obedience to the ceremonial law or to the moral law or to anything else. At no point is God going to reckon you righteous in his sight on the basis of what you did. However, you can indeed demonstrate you, the reality of your faith, the truth of God's declaration, the presence of you, the righteousness that God is working in you by things that you do. Yeah. Right? Would that have been uh, confusing to him if he had known what the Ten Commandments said, thou shalt not kill? Uh, no, well, one, Abraham did know, and yes, I think it was confusing, okay? And here's the Ten Command. Here's the commandment: You shall not kill. Now we know that you shall not kill is based upon the fact that God made man in His image, right? We know that from Genesis chapter nine. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by his blood shall uh, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made him in His image, meaning God owns all human life. Right, it's not actually a violation of the commandment to kill someone that God says to kill, because God is the one who determines who can live and who can die. So if God tells you to kill someone, then it is actually not a violation of that commandment. Nevertheless, I would say that as a righteous man, that had to have been difficult for Abraham. Not only that, so in addition to okay, the the, the difficulty of well, I can't murder my son. The, the son Isaac was the promised son, right? Uh, Abraham, take your son, your son Isaac, 
your son whom you love. Right? He, God, even when he gives him the command, enforces, makes it a very... God knows Abraham's feeling for his son. He was the hope of salvation for the world, right? But what do we learn in Hebrews is that Abraham believed that God could raise him from the dead if necessary, right? So um, to, to answer your question, was there a conflict? I'm sure that in his mind he had to work through that conflict of, of the sixth commandment, you shall not kill. But ultimately, the command to not kill means you shall not take human life unjustly, right? If God commands you to take a human life, it cannot be an unjust command. So there wouldn't have been an unjust um, uh, taking of Isaac's life. However, we know from the very beginning, it was not God's intention for Isaac to die. Okay, It was God's intention to demonstrate the righteousness of Abraham. That he feared God so much that he loved and feared God more than even the thing that God gave him, his son. Yes, go ahead. I was going to say, Rick, for me, putting yourself in the position of Abraham, the personal angst that you would have in three days taking him to the top of the Yes, yes, yes. Um, and it is a little bit like, and I, I think a little bit like Solomon with the two mothers and the one baby, right? And he commanded to cut the baby in half. This is a, God is testing Abraham here, right? Um, and Abraham's willingness to do that is what is at stake here. Does he fear the Lord that much? And you're right. Um, <laughs> you know, saddling up your donkey and, and bringing your son. And, and you, know, you know, Abraham tells the, the servants in Genesis 22, you stay here, the boy and I are going to go over there, and we will be back. See, uh, yeah. he had not yet, he didn't know how God was going to do it. But his conviction was this. God is going to do it. Somehow, some way, we will be back. Even if I do something that, humanly speaking, it is going to contradict everything I know about how he's going to keep that promise. But God has promised. He swore by himself. God will not break his promise. Therefore, I can go and do what seems impossible. Yeah. All right, let's look for a moment at the example of Rahab, which you know is in Joshua 2, and it serves the same purpose as the example of Abraham. And, and one of the things that's very interesting, as, as you read modern commentators, they, make, they spill a lot of ink about Abraham being exactly different from, from Rahab. You know, Abraham, he's a, he's a male He's a covenant member. He's wealthy. All of these things, and and Abraham, or excuse me, Rahab is female, and she's an outsider, and and she's poor. I don't know how they know that, um, but but it's kind of the class struggle thing, and really that's not the point. Now there are some. It is interesting. I mean, yes, she's she's a good a good um, contrasting example in that she is a female, in that she came from Jericho. But that's Abraham's story too, <laughs> in the sense that he was an outsider whom God called. Right? Out of Ur, of the Chaldees. So, uh, anyways, the point, James tells us what his point. It serves the same purpose as the example of Abraham. Rahab, likewise, right? Verse 23. Likewise, was not Rahab also justified by works? His point is that Rahab, who is a hero to us, 
was also justified by her works. How so? When she received the messengers and sent them the other way. Okay? It's interesting if you go to Hebrews 13, again, this is by faith Rahab, right? How is her faith described? By what she did here in Joshua 2. See, her faith is so united with what she did that the author of Hebrews says, by faith she did this. Okay, her believing the Lord, who, how did she get to know the Lord? Well, as far as we know, just from the spies, right? They told her about the Lord and promised to spare her and her family, and she switched sides. She decided to follow the Lord, and that, that was proven by the fact she risked her neck by hiding the spies and sending them out the other way. All right? Um, so sending them the other way and, and hiding them initially, or receiving them, hiding them, sending them the other way, that proved that she had a genuine, profitable, effectual, or lively faith. And the final analogy then that follows this is the analogy between the body without the spirit and faith without works. This recalls the creation of man. Yes, sir, go ahead. Just a touch on Rahab, like she, and I might be incorrect about this, yeah. but it's my uh, remembrance and understanding yeah. that she knew about God prior to them, and her fear was of, like she feared God way more than her own government, her own people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when they came, yeah. she was happy to hide them, saying like, yeah. look, we've been hearing about you guys for 40 years. Yeah, yeah, what yeah. God did for yeah. So Yes. Yes, in fact, yes, um, you're right. She saw the God of Israel being victorious in battles and, and uh, conquering the nations around them. And she was in fear of the God of Israel, right? Yeah, and then when the spies come, she now has someone to connect those dots for her, right? She has someone to tell her, um, this God whom you fear will actually save you. Right? That's, yeah, very good. Um, so that the body without the spirit is dead. Um, this, as I said in, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, the Lord fashioned a body from the dust of the earth and breathed into it his spirit, and man became a living being. Right. So a living man is one who has a body and a soul. He has breath in him. And a dead man is one whose soul has left his body. And so, James's point here is that there's an essential union of body and soul, and, and when you have one without the other, it's incomplete. Right? A man without a soul is a dead body. Okay? Likewise, faith that doesn't have works is dead. And it's interesting when we think about this, because we tend to think of um, faith being inward and works being outward. But James's analogy actually kind of relies on the opposite, doesn't it? The soul is inward and the body is outward. And in James' analogy, it's works that correspond to the spirit and faith corresponds to the body. Um, just so that we don't get the impression that, kind of going back to the person who would say, well, I have faith, you know, you just can't see it. And James is saying, oh, but you, you can see if you have faith. Just like I... I can't see Jake's soul, but I can tell you, <laughs> I can tell you it's there, right? 
I can tell you it's there. Why? Because he is living. Right? I, I have evidence of it. I know it by virtue of its effects. So too with faith. You know faith by virtue of its effects. Alright, so in the same way that a, a body and soul are joined together, and when they're separated, that's a problem. Okay? In the same way then, profitable, effectual, visible, lively faith is always joined with works. Now these works, I want to just, um, so since Reformation Sunday, we'll make a point of clarification. Understand, first of all, that the justification to which James refers is that demonstration, that vindication of a believing person. Okay? It is not the initial, what we call justification, in a sense of a declaration by God that you are counted righteous according to or, or because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's not what he's referring to here. Um, the second thing that I want to say is the fruit of faith or part of faith is obedience to God, right? That's what faith does. Faith, faith understands the word of God. Faith believes the word of God. Faith obeys the word of God. Faith trembles at the threats in the word of God. See, these are all responses from faith to the word of God. That part of faith is always present with genuine faith. Right? When, when Abraham first believed, he, he already had that part of faith. But that part of faith grows and it gets completed, right? It grows towards perfection. And it doesn't always um, evidence immediately. Although, like we saw in the, with the thief on the cross, it's pretty clear that immediately his loyalty had shifted. Um, so the reason I say this then is um, sometimes people say, well, if, if you say that faith must always be accompanied by works, then what you're saying is in some way you're justified by works and your initial justification, right? But that's a mistake, that's an error in reasoning. And, and um, Robert L. Dabney, a, a great godly southern gentleman who you all should appreciate and be grateful for, said this, that um, it is possible for a thing to have many attributes and only one or more of those attributes to be operative in a specific case or occasion. And he used the example of a diamond. He said a diamond <coughs> is both clear and hard. Its clarity helps it to be sparkly. Its hardness helps it to cut. Now, in order for a diamond to shine, it does not need to be hard. It just needs to be clear. In order for a diamond to cut, it does not need to be shiny, right? So you think of then justification as if um, that's one work of faith. The obedience, the works of your faith are not operative in God declaring you righteous. They're there, but they're not what it's based upon. It's based upon what we call the receptive elements of our faith. Accepting and receiving Christ alone as he's offered to us in the gospel. Right? That's like one part of the diamond. But there's another part of that diamond that is always there with it. It's just that that's not what's operative or essential in that particular activity. Alright? All right, let me stop there. I'll pray for us, and, and we'll, we'll dismiss. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, O oh God, for 
James especially, but all of your word. Oh God, we want to be like Abraham and Rahab. Help us to have a faith that shows itself, that vindicates our belief, our trust in you. Grow in us, Lord, the faith that obeys you. Give to us, O oh Lord, that fear of you that demonstrates, vindicates, justifies us in the eyes of all. We pray, Father, you would forgive us where we have fallen short. And we ask for your blessing today, particularly as we go and worship you, that by faith today, Lord, we would receive a blessing in worshiping you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.